Again, great to have you joining us today. So good to see you. Got a question for you as we start off. Have you ever found yourself wondering, I don't understand how anyone could think. I don't understand how anyone would, could think. I have some hot button issues that maybe I would fill in the last part of that things I don't really understand. I don't understand how anyone could think that pineapple belongs on pizza. I just don't get that. The flavor profiles don't make sense to me. I don't understand how anyone could think the Toronto Maple Leafs are a good hockey team. I'm just seeing if you're awake. This is the part of the sermon I'm just trying to get, like I'm needling you a little bit. It's okay. I don't understand how anyone could think that steak should be ordered well done. That one for me hits close to home. It's just not how it's supposed to be prepared. You want to know how it's supposed to be prepared? Come over. I will prepare a steak properly for you. But honestly, there are some of these ones that are kind of silly and we argue about and it's opinions about stylistic things and and things maybe that don't matter a whole bunch. But the reality is, and we've been talking about uh, some of the hot button things that really get to us in this sermon series, some of the things that are very polarizing, that pull us apart. And I think there's a whole bunch of us, a lot of us, who have probably thought in the last couple of years, I just don't understand how anyone could think and then fill in the blank. I just don't get it. I've got this strong opinion and I've, I've read all these things and I've heard all these things and I'm tracking all the way down this, here's how we make these decisions, and I just don't get how people come to certain conclusions that are so different from mine, and there's this real emotional part to that. There's something that can even be ripping us apart relationally, and that's something I'm hearing a lot of the time is there's so many of us who we feel like there's these really important things that are happening, and then I'm talking to people, maybe even people that I really love, I really like, that I had a strong relationship with, but now when I see certain people, I'm cringing, hoping that certain topics don't come up because because I know we, we, we don't agree, and I, I just, I don't know how we're going to deal with this. I don't know how they come to this conclusion. I don't know how they possibly think that way. There's others of us where we would say, there's people in my life that not only I, I would cringe about what if a certain topic came up, but to be honest, I don't even want to talk to those people. I don't want to go there. I don't want to be in their home anymore. I don't want to be around them because I know that there are these issues that are now coming up that are splitting us apart, and I, I don't know what to do with it, or I don't want to get into it. Some of us, we might be wired in such a way to say, and I know if I'm there, I'm going to fight, and we're going to get into it, and I'm going to go right after them. Others of us, we're wired the opposite way, and we're like, the last thing I want is a fight. The last thing I want is to get into it. I just want to have peace. And why do we have to have all these things that are ripping us apart? And so for many of us, even right now, you might be thinking of certain people or situations and it becomes emotionally charged that there are these polarities. There are these things that pull us apart and, and discussions that we might not want to get into. And whereas we might have some of the ones that are sort of innocuous, there are some of these issues where we really go, I just don't understand how anyone could think. So we're starting, we started a couple of weeks ago in this series. We're calling it Rise Above. We're trying to talk about how do we get above sort of the, uh, the dialogue that happens with so many of us. This is just so, uh, so difficult and so tense and so polarizing. And so we started by saying in this series that we need to start with humility. We need to entertain the idea that we could be wrong. And we also need to entertain the idea that we could be right but have a terrible attitude. And that could be ruining relationships just as much. That could be just as difficult for other people and for us to actually find common ground. Even if, even if we're right in our opinion, certainly we all think we're right in our opinion. Last week we talked about how we need to be informed by the world, but we need to be formed by Christ. So we can't put our heads in the sand and just pretend that uh, there are no issues out there and there's no problems and we don't have to have an opinion. We're all going to be forming opinions, but we need to be forming the kind of character that allows us to hold those opinions 
opinions and to be in relationship with others and to continue to be loving people. We need to be formed by the character of Christ to become more like Christ over time. That's going to help us whatever disagreements we might have to be able to actually um, have the kind of character that helps us uh, grow instead of just decline and, and walk away from one another. So today, as we kind of took those first two weeks, and I think those are a little bit more internal things, things that we need to deal with uh, for our own lives as individuals. Today, I want to turn it outwards a little bit and go, okay, but still, let's say, you know, we start doing these powerful times of devotion, and we, Christ is, is working in my life, and I'm becoming more loving or patient or kind or generous or whatever it might be, and, and you know, God's working on my humility, and I'm realizing, but now, how do we still engage with other people? What happens when we go to our extended family, and we realize all of a sudden we're in a discussion with people? who think drastically different than us and our emotions are rising up and going, oh, I hate this, I don't want to deal with this, or I hate this and I got to make sure that they all know that I'm right. What are we going to do? So today, uh, here's my suggestion to us. If you find yourself thinking, I don't know how anyone could think what they think, then find out. This seems almost so basic and yet so ignored for us. We walk around, I don't know, I don't understand any of these people and how they think. And that's where we leave it. And we just leave people over there in the bin of, I don't get those people. Those people are weird. Those people are uninformed. Those people are crazy. Those people have a terrible opinion. Those people, and that's what really it is, right? It's us and them. We kind of put them over there. I just don't understand them. I wonder why more of us don't say, if I don't understand them, maybe I should try. What would it look like if I walked over into that category I've put people into and said, maybe my first step should be trying to understand people that I don't understand? That perhaps this could be a powerful relational principle for us. So uh, throughout this series, we've been in the book of Galatians, which is a letter um, in the New Testament written to the church in Galatia. And uh, the reason why we're going through it is because, as we've talked about, uh, it's a letter uh, that is written in the middle of conflict, albeit very different from ours, and the the issues that they were dealing with are different than ours, but right in the middle of very contentious arguments that are sociological, that are theological, that are important to people, that are very practical. And so we're learning a lot of the principles uh, as this letter was written to these people to say, okay, in the midst of all this conflict, here's where I want you to focus, here's where I want you uh, to bring yourselves into unity as a church and then live in the world around you. And so it's really powerful for us. The first thing I want to notice, and I think, again, this comes from what I've just sort of summarized in our first two weeks, is that being opinionated doesn't make you mature. Today, we're going to start talking about maturity, what it looks like to be a mature follower of Jesus. And for many of us who are followers of Jesus, uh, to really pay attention to what that looks like. If you're not a follower of Jesus, hopefully, uh, we're not always great models of this in the church. I hate to say it, uh, but hopefully we can give you a bit of a picture of what it, what it might look like if we were really committed to following Jesus and opening ourselves up to what God wants to do in us to change our character and who we are, and as we admit our faults in that, to say we want to grow together. And a lot of the letter uh, from here on out will help us uh, think through what it looks like to be mature. But the first thing is being opinionated doesn't make you mature. That's weeks one and two of this sermon series. Everybody has an opinion. Our children have opinions. Older people have opinions. People on one side of an issue, people on the other side of an issue. It doesn't make you mature that I'm strongly opinionated. In fact, in week one, we saw that Paul was super opinionated before he met Jesus, and he was, by his own admission, a terrible person. He was persecuting the church. He was violent. And his word for that was he was zealous. He had this passion that overflowed in him for all of his opinions about the Bible and the law and how people should live. 
And yet it had not sunk in and changed his heart. Instead, it divided him and made him uh, opposition to people and opposition to the, the cost of Christ. And so uh, I think um, for many of us, unfortunately, superficial religion of all kinds, including Christianity, sometimes fools us into believing that we are mature when we come to an opinion. Oh, I read the Bible. Oh, it's God's Word, and God's Word says this, and so now I have an opinion about that, that thing, and then we sort of build uh, our lives on an opinion of what we think, and we think that because we have this knowledge, now I'm becoming mature. And again, that's what Paul talked about. He had all of that. He, he was surpassing everybody in the knowledge and the religious stature and, and, and looking good and, and what he thought other people should do and all that kind of stuff. And he said, but that wasn't making me more like Jesus. Unfortunately, many of us stop at that level in religion of just some knowledge and forming opinions. But that's not really mature. That's a step. You do need to form an opinion. You do need to read your Bible and figure out what you believe on certain issues and what it looks like to follow Jesus. It just it doesn't bring you to being a super mature person. So let's dive a little bit deeper. We're in Galatians chapter 3. If you have a Bible, I'd love for you to turn to Galatians chapter 3. I'm going to start reading in verse 23, and uh, you can read along with me. I'd love for you to, uh, during the week, even check out these texts, go through them, uh, ask what God might be speaking to you through them, go a little bit deeper, study for yourself. Uh, but here's what it says in Galatians chapter 3, 23. Before the coming of this faith, remember Paul's talking about uh, the law. We talked about that last week and how the law came up short. And so they were waiting for something deeper, a deeper faith. Before this coming of, the coming of this faith, we were held in custody under the law, locked up until the faith that was to come would be revealed. So the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith. Now that this faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So if we said, first and foremost, uh, being opinionated doesn't make you mature, Paul's going to go deeper in this passage and saying, being a rule follower doesn't make you mature. So he picks up this idea of the law again. Uh, he says, before the coming of faith, we'll notice he talks about the coming of faith twice, and then he uses the same language to talk about uh, now that uh, Christ has come. He's going to equate those. So we had the law, but we're waiting for real faith. Now, the Jewish people wouldn't say they were not, they would not have said that they were not people of faith. We faithfully follow the law. We, 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 this is how we're obedient to God, and, and this is our, uh, our worship and our expression in our lives of being covenant people of God and all that goes with that. And yet Paul's saying we're following the law, but we're waiting for real faith to come. And what he's going to say here by the time we get to verse 24, he now substitutes and says the law was our guardian until Christ came that we really saw what it looks like to be a faithful person, a real, a faithful covenant person of God. We saw that in Christ. Before that, we were always looking for something more. The law was just not enough for us. Paul's taking a risk here, just as Jesus did, in talking about the law, because this was for uh, their, their audience, their, their fellow Jews. This was their scripture. This was the word of God. This was God revealed to uh, people like Moses, the law, to give to us. And so to comment on that and to comment it in any way that seems a little bit negative is a big risk. But Jesus, we, we referred to this last uh, week as well, uh, he didn't say, oh, the, the law is useless. He said, I didn't come to abolish this. I didn't come to throw it out and say it's useless, but I came to fulfill it. I came to say there's something more. We were all, we've always been waiting for something more. Paul here says that we were, as we were looking forward to something, the law was our guardian. 
until Christ came and we saw a true picture of faithfulness. The law was our guardian. This word guardian uh, in the original Greek would have referred to how some households would have had a guardian for their children. So it was often a servant or a slave as part of the household. And their job, it might be like if we were going to find something similar in our culture, we might say be something like an au pair or a nanny. It was like, we need you to take care of the kids. We need you to make sure the kids don't get into trouble, that they don't do things that are going to disrupt the household. We need you to make sure that the kids get to school, those kind of things. This is your guardian. So as we raise our children and we try and teach them some of the basics of life, we have this person who comes in, okay, you're in charge. Make sure they don't get into trouble. Make sure they don't get into mischief. Make sure they get to their classes. And, And that's what we're relying on you for. Paul often talks about how uh, what really comes of this in the law, and the problem with the law is our babysitters taking us around, telling us not to get into mischief. Don't do this, don't do this. Go to school. You know, this is what you're supposed to do. This is what you're not supposed to do. What, what the guardian teaches us is that we're sinners. What the guardian teaches us is that we can never follow all of those rules. What the guardian, the law, teaches us is that God has given us great promises of who he is and who, what he wants to do in our lives, but we are the ones that cannot fulfill our end of that bargain. So do we just throw it out? No, we, Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but he came to say, that's, that's only going to take us so far. Trying to follow the rules, trying to follow the rules in this way by following the law just is never going to take you far enough. Listen, we can't be children following around the nanny forever. That's an important part, by the way, of our development. Learning things like what, what's right and wrong, what am I supposed to do and not supposed to do. That's not bad. It's just not maturity. It's not where you're supposed to go. It's the first step, not the last step. And as I said, unfortunately, many of us, uh, we've treated our religious life, our spirituality, our Christianity, just trying to get to the most basic part. I just need to follow the right rules. But being a rule follower is not actually helping, is not making you mature. It's one step that we're supposed to build on. One of the most basic ways I could illustrate this is just talk about our kids and the way that we teach our kids. There's levels, right? So at this point in my parenting life, our parenting life, my wife and I, we've got small kids, two under six. One of them's two, one of them's five. So when we turn on the stove and one of them goes toward the stove and gets too close, we say, stop, don't go near the stove. We're teaching our kids not to go near the stove because it's hot. And because if they reach out and touch the wrong thing, it burns them and it hurts and it's got to heal and it could leave a scar and we don't want them to go through all of that. And sometimes, as you know, as parents, those things happen and they have to learn the hard way. But we're trying to teach them, just don't go near the stove. But one thing you'll notice, if you ever watch us as a household and we go to make dinner and my wife and I are in the kitchen and we're doing our thing, when she goes toward the stove to flip something or to put something on, I don't turn around and go, wait, no, don't go near the stove. It's hot. At some point, we teach our kids, don't go near the stove. You're not ready for that. You could get hurt. But there needs to come a point where we take some other steps and we say, now here's how you turn on the stove. Here's how you respect the stove. Here's the parts of things that you touch and you don't touch. You don't touch the element. You can touch the handle. You don't touch this part. When this is hot, you got to let it cool down. This is how you cook, right? We want our kids one day not to sit around going, I wish we could eat tonight, but I'm not supposed to touch the stove. We would say, no, you're supposed to mature. And at the right time, you take another step and you say, okay, here's how you put the water in the pot and turn it on and you let it boil. You don't touch the boiling water. There's a maturing process. So just following the law doesn't take us far enough. Just being opinionated about what's on the stove doesn't take us far enough. 
I think uh, we need to be careful and to make sure we just know that having an opinion or just following rules doesn't make us mature, doesn't make us mature followers of Jesus, doesn't make us mature people. Although, like I said, these are important steps in our maturity. We're working towards something, but Paul is showing us, just as Jesus did, that this was always moving in a, a deeper direction. So then he says, and then we saw Christ, and in Christ we see the coming of God's grown-up child. For the Israelites, this is what God's people were always supposed to mature to. We were looking, what is it supposed to be to be a good, mature, worshiping Jew? Well, the New Testament writers, especially like Paul, these Jewish men, would say, Jesus, Jesus shows us what all of us were supposed to be, what all of us were supposed to grow up in. Now we say, oh, we had lots of bad examples of how we weren't, we weren't hitting our mark. The law showed us that we were sinners. Then we saw Jesus, and Jesus showed us what this was supposed to be pushing us towards, what the law was supposed to be pushing us towards. The ultimate uh, picture of trust, the grown-up, mature Israelite we see in Jesus. We might say that the, the ultimate grown-up human being, whole person, in the context of the relationship with God and other people, we see in Jesus. He shows us what maturity will look like. Tim Keller says, Most religion in the world operates on the principle of I obey, therefore I am accepted by God. The basic operating principle of the gospel is I am accepted by God through the work of Jesus Christ, therefore I obey. Here is a good picture of a deeper religion. Not just what do I do to get God to love me? How do I earn this? But how do I really become faithful? And he says we start by coming to faith in Jesus. And Jesus shows us we're accepted by God through the work of him for what he has done for us. Therefore, I am going to obey. I'm going to learn how to practically live out this faith. But that's where it starts. We see the perfect picture, the, the real human. The one, if you look at the story of Adam and Eve and you say, oh, look how these human beings uh, couldn't trust God. They were expelled from the garden. Well, Jesus is the one that shows us now what does it look like to live a life fully in trust to God? to be fully faithful. Ah, we've now seen it. What the law could not do, the law showed us we were sinners. Christ has now given us a picture that he has done for us. So we continue to read verse 26. It says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself with Christ. There's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Started in verse 26 by saying, So in Christ Jesus, that's not a throwaway little term. It's an important one. In Christ, which means, as he would go on to say, we're invited to be children of God. This is a challenge to our hyper-individualistic society. We live in a time and a place, maybe more than any other time and place in history, where we have prized individuality. I am who I am. I am who I want to be. I am called to, or not even called, I am supposed to make my own identity. Go make something of yourself. Go prove something of yourself. Go build something of yourself. And it's very individualistic. It's about what I can do and who I am. And again, we plug that into uh, even our religious lives. But in the biblical uh, framework of thinking, and in most cultures of the world, uh, we have much more of a collective sense of who we are together. And Paul is saying, for all of us, we are in Christ. That is, we are invited to be children of God. Who are we? It's not just, I'm Dave, and, and you're so-and-so, and you're so-and-so, and we're all these scattered individuals trying to make something of ourselves. We are called to collectively come and be part of something that's bigger than ourselves. That's an important part of maturing. My life is not my own. My life can't be lived in isolation. 
My life, no matter what people tell us and what we're portrayed in our culture, is not about what I can achieve and what I can earn and what I can have and what I can buy and what I, 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 I. We're called in to be part of something bigger. We're all called to be in Christ, Jesus. People who are followers of Jesus. We're now in Christ. You go, well, it doesn't make sense to me. What does that mean, this collective identity? First, it means uh, you, don't, you don't stop being your individual self. You don't stop bringing who you are. But it means you're part of something bigger. So this past week, anybody watching the Olympics? Okay, tough crowd. Anybody watching the Olympics? Anybody watch anything of the Olympics? All right, our Olympic hockey teams. Let's talk about one of our Olympic hockey teams. Wasn't a super great week for our men. But our women's team, Women's Canada, won the gold medal. Now, here's what's true of the women's Canadian women's hockey team, is that whoever is part of that team, there's a lot of individuals, and they're all different. Some are wingers, some are centers, some play defense. There's some goalies, there's some coaches, there's all these people that are part of the team, and they all have a different role. They're all individuals. They've all had to work hard. They've all had to, to, to put in the training. But they come together as a team. And here's what's true. Whoever was the forward, whoever was on defense, whoever was the goalie, whoever was the best performing player in the Olympics, and whoever was the worst performing player in the Olympics, they all won the gold medal. Who are they collectively? They're Team Canada. We come as individuals, but we are now Team Canada. That's who we are. This is similar to what Paul is saying. Yes, we're individuals, and we don't cease to be individuals. We don't give up the parts that make us uh, different or unique. But together, we're here coming to be in Christ, this collective identity. So picture, this is Christ. What Christ has done, the faithful one, the true Israelite, the true human being, the one who shows what it looks like to be faithful before God, now inviting us to be part of that identity. We get to be in Christ. And some of us are further along in our, our walk with Christ and others. And some of us, we, we look a certain way and we do certain things and we have certain gifts. Paul talks a lot about that in a lot of other places. But all of us get to be together collectively in Christ and that now changes how we think of each other. He says the sign of this is baptism. Verse 27, for all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. Two imageries. One, baptism means to drown, one of the ways we could translate it. Uh, we, you've seen that. Some of you here at church, we baptize people. When they come to faith, they want to proclaim who they are now. They're proclaiming their identity. I'm now in Christ. How do you become in Christ? Well, you die to your old self. You die to the one who says, I'm trying to earn. I'm trying to, to, to build something. I'm, I'm creating my own identity. And now you're accepting the identity of of Christ, who says, I forgive you for your sins. I raise you up to a new life. So we plunge people under the water because we're symbolically saying, we're, we're drowned. That's not, my, that's not my primary identity. I'm not going to cease to be an individual, but that's not ultimately who I am. Then you're raised up in Christ. New life. I am now in Christ. I am part of this. This is what happens when you're baptized. It's an initiation, right, to, to becoming a new person. A powerful thing. By the way, if you if you haven't been baptized and you'd like to be baptized, we have a baptism service coming up uh, this Easter in April. And even if you're maybe thinking about it or just there's something, maybe God's just putting it on your heart a little bit and you say, man, I need to express what's already happened in my life, that Jesus has saved me from my sin. Or if it's something maybe that you want to talk more about, would you come talk to me or send me an email and we can set up a time? We'd love to talk to you about what that's like. Uh, and if you're ready to take that step, we would love to help you through that process and to figure that out. But the result here for Paul is not just, oh, you became a Christian and now you have an individual identity as a Christian, which is, again, some of us how we express our religious views. 
It's very individualistic. I am this, I am that, now I said a prayer, and now I am a Christian. But for Paul, see how he's embedding it in this whole unity thing that you are now in Christ, that you come and you be part of something that's bigger than just you, that's bigger than just your life. Christ is a powerful reconciler bringing people together. It's not just about your personal thing. That's important, my personal decision, where I'm at with God, and you know, I want to follow Christ. But Paul's saying, and that brings you into a corporate identity. You bring your whole self, but now as a new person... We're all one in Christ. There's this powerful unity. Then he gives us some pictures of, of just how uh, differently we think about this. So did you catch this part at the end of what we read? He says, now there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free. There's neither male or female. You're all one in Christ Jesus. These are divisions and categories that would have been very strong for his original audience. That they would have said, well, this is how we categorize people. Remember, we've been talking all the way through this series about, uh, you know, most of the first Christians were Jewish. Jesus was Jewish, and so his first audience, primarily Jewish, all these Jewish people coming to Christ, they're wrestling with what that looks like with their Judaism. But then people like Paul are taking this gospel message to people who have completely different backgrounds, ethnically and religiously and morally, and they're going, that's what Galatians is largely about. How do we deal with all this? How do we deal with these people who are so different from us? Probably people who at some point would stop and say, I don't understand how those people think. I don't understand how they could ever think that way. Well, because they're very different from you. That's why this is so important. Paul is saying, look, you've got this dualistic way of thinking. Dualism is when we separate based on opposites, right? The either-or thinking. Our human brains love this because it's simple. We love it because we can categorize people and we can just make things easy. Who are the good guys and the bad guys? That'd be easy in life, isn't it? Again, this is a primitive way of thinking. This is how our children think. I watch a movie or TV with my kids. Do you know what a lot of time they try and figure out right away? Who's the good guy? Who's the bad guy? Dad, that's a bad guy. That's the bad guy. I know, it's a dragon. Dragons are bad guys. Not always, though. Then you read those books and they're not. And you're like, you're blowing the minds of your children. They're like, wait, that was my category. Dragons are always the bad guy. Then you read a story and go, this dragon's a good guy? It's kind of what Paul's doing here powerful thing. But we love it. Who are the good guys and the bad guys? It makes it easy for us. And then we can separate each other out. We can build up walls. So the people that think like me, we're the good guys. And the people that don't, they're the bad guys. People that do things like me, we're the good ones. People who do things that are not like me, they're the bad ones. We've seen it throughout human history in all different ways, in, in, in religious practices, in race, in, in uh, philosophy, certainly in politics. It's all over the place. It's dualistic thinking. We're over here, you're over there. Good guys, bad guys. Either or. Well, here's the number, the number three thing today that does not make you mature. Being judgmental does not make you mature. Jesus was pretty clear about this over and over and over again. And yet, how many of us just have not been able to get to this point? Right? Our religious experience has been, I build up an opinion, I get zealous about it, I hold on to it, and then I'm kind of a fearful, I'm an opponent of anybody that thinks differently. And you go, okay, that could be true, and there's important issues out there, and we're going to disagree on that. But if you look to Jesus, the faithful one, the true human, see that he's the one that invites all the people that, 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 that all those religious people who build up so many walls were saying, well, until you, until you can, you know, come over our side, you're over there. Those are the people that go, got most upset with Jesus. Those are the people that were his biggest opponents because he was out there eating with the people he wasn't supposed to eat with, being relational with the people he wasn't supposed to talk to, 
And instead of judgment, he was giving them grace. Instead of building up walls, he was breaking down walls and inviting them into something that is deeper. So now, rather than putting people in categories, Paul would suggest that we see them as children of God. Wow. Now, now we're getting tough, right? It's so easy. It's so emotionally easy for us to just go, let's just stay on our side. And we'll get angry, maybe bitter. We'll keep those people at a distance. It's a much easier strategy. Let's just do the dualistic thinking thing. Good guys over here, bad guys over there. See you later. But Jesus calls us to something deeper because it wasn't about this law where we just all build it up and I'll prove myself and you will. It's about love. Love requires us to walk towards each other. Well, we look at this list and, and Paul, uh, he, he makes a similar list in the book of Colossians. Maybe tech guys, I'm going to skip just ahead to the, the passage in Colossians chapter 3. Paul says, uh, again, in a similar passage, but it's a little bit lengthy, but I want you to notice as I read this, just the, not just what he says uh, about what we've already read, but what he says about what God wants to give us and do in our lives and, and how he wants to change us. He says, but now's the time to get rid of anger, rage, malice, malicious behavior, slander, and dirty language. Don't lie to each other. For you have stripped off the old sinful nature and all its wicked deeds. Put on your new nature and be renewed as you learn to know your creator and, and become like him. In this new life, it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or Gentile, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbaric, uncivilized, slave or free. Christ is all that matters and he lives in all of us. We're looking at all the things that divide us and Paul says, but look for what unites us. Look for Christ in you, you collectively, not just you as an individual. Look for where Christ is in you. See Christ in one another. So that you can break down these divisions because you think that's your identity and that's their identity. But what if we were looking for God's presence in people's lives instead and saying, instead of seeing all the things that we could argue about and fight about and be angry about and malicious about, I see in you that you also are a child of God, that somewhere deep inside of you, even if it's been marred and all of us it has been, I see the presence of God in you. You're an image bearer of God. Bringing people together. Religion so often, we've missed the point of religious maturity. It shouldn't be ripping us apart. It should be bringing us together. And if you're at the point where you go, man, my opinions and what I think and therefore how I treat each other, I've realized I'm alienating people in my life. It's time for us to rethink. Rethink our entire approach. Later in verse 14 in Colossians 3, he says, Above all, this is similar to what he said in Galatians 3, clothe yourselves with love. In Galatians 3, it was clothe yourself with Christ. We clothe ourselves with Christ, which binds us all together in perfect harmony. And let the peace that comes from Christ, isn't this beautiful? Rule in our hearts. Let God's peace, not our anger, not our bitterness, not our divisions, let God's peace rule in our hearts, take charge in our lives, be what we listen to in our lives, the peace of God, not the anger that is swimming around in our souls, and always be thankful. This idea of putting on, uh, clothe yourself with Christ, or clothe yourself with love, which I think is pretty much synonymous, probably, uh, just think about this. You wake up one morning, and you're going to go, uh, you're going to go work in the garden, or mow the lawn, or, or do some kind of dirty job outside. You're going to put on a, a certain, certain outfit. If you're going to go into an office, you're going to put on a different kind of outfit, Different jobs, different, different functions. You're going to think about your clothes. Paul's going, hey, 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 when you go out into the world, when you're dealing with your family, when you're dealing with your, your coworkers, what should I be wearing? Functionally speaking, put on Christ. Clothe yourself with Christ. Let him mature you. 
that you might have a chance to bring people together in love instead of divide people in hatred or anger or whatever else might be. Maturity is when in Christ we can find unity rather than insisting on uniformity. This is much more mature. Instead of saying, good guys here, bad guys there, us, them, either, or, agree with me, don't agree with me, categories, I put you there, here, simplifying people, right? We talked about uh, kids who just go, good guys and bad guys. You know, if you watch adult movies, I shouldn't say that, like if you watch adult, for a number of reasons, just heard how that sounded, it's a different sermon. When you grow up and watch more mature movies, I was going to say, uh, all of a sudden we realize it's a different ballgame, but a lot of us as adults, uh, we still like to watch movies where it's just good guys and bad guys, right? Especially the action movies. But if you watch uh, real good movies or, or uh, re- read literature, like good literature, or watch real good films, what you understand is that people are much more complicated. The, the good characters are the one where you go, they're not just a bad guy or a good guy. They're complicated and they've got a background and they're trying to be this, but they're that. And you realize, and then all of a sudden you realize, oh, the reason those really good literature, the really, really good uh, film is because that speaks to the human condition. We're just not all that simple to put people in categories. So we have to go deeper. We look for Christ. We look for the image of God in each other. And instead of insisting that we all have to be the same or else you're in a different category and we keep you at a distance, we look for what unites us, what really unites us, that we're all in Christ even if we're different, even if we disagree, and even if we have a whole bunch of different things that look different. So if you find yourself thinking, I don't know how anyone could think what they think. Why don't we start by finding out? Then find out. Look around the room. You go, in this room, there's all kinds of things we could fight about, we disagree about, we have different backgrounds, we have different ethnicities here, we have different, different ways of thinking about issues, we have different ways of approaching life. You might even, if we just open it up, you might look around and go, I don't know how you could ever think that. Well, then why don't you find out? Wouldn't the loving thing be, let's walk towards each other, and instead of just categorizing, we say, I want to understand you. You go to your extended family, and you go, I don't want to be here because I don't want certain things to come up, and I don't want to talk about it. What if you started with trying to understand people who are different? You're at work, and you go, I don't understand how, how my coworkers can be different, and how they, can, they want to do this, and I can't, I, I'm so far from that. What if... When we said, I just can't understand that category, the people that I put in that category, why don't we start breaking down that category by saying, I want to understand you. So here's three things that I think might help us. I want to get real practical today, uh, especially if you're thinking, here's some people that I just, I don't, I don't even want to have conversations with or I'm struggling with. I'm actually going to invite you to have a conversation. Go towards those people and intentionally put yourself in that conversation. Here's some things I'll suggest. Number one, surrender the need to control and convert people. We walk into conversations and we just want to get them to think what we think. We want to be in control. And I can't believe you don't think what I think, so here's what you should think. And haven't you seen this? And didn't you read this? And We want to convert, 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 convert. And so we talk so much and we never understand anybody else because we just want them to understand us. We want to get in debates with people who have... No intention of debating us. Isn't that true? Okay, let's get into this. And you want to argue and argue and argue, and you realize there's people, they don't want to change their mind. They don't want to enter into the debate. Guess what? You don't have to. Your role doesn't have to be to save the whole world and make them think what you think and to convert everybody to your philosophy and your politics and your way of thinking. If you want to understand people, you actually have to surrender some of that control and say, not everybody's going to agree with me. I'm not going to win every debate. So I'm going to walk into this with a different kind of agenda. That's tough. We love to be in control because we're right. 
I know. Yeah, I know. You're all right. We're all right. But maybe not, right? Let's just try and relinquish some control. By the way, we talked about superficial religion that just, you know, riles us up and categorizes all, all good, deep spirituality, what I think God calls us into, what I think Christ uh, models for us. A huge part of that is surrendering control in faith. We can't control this world. If you, if you don't understand that, we're going to be stunted in our growth always. Number two, listen more than you talk. I get it. You want to you wanna change everybody's mind. Can't believe they, they don't think like me. But what if we actually want to find out what people think and not just to argue with them? Okay, tell me what you think so that I can slam you down. What if we actually, uh, tell me what you think and not just what do you think, but why do you think that? And what's some of your background that, that might emotionally be leading you to think what you think? And maybe if we started actually listening, I'm going to sit and listen. I want your perspective. And I want to know how you got to your opinion. And, and it might even go, oh, but I hate that they came to that opinion. Okay, but just let God work on that. Be patient and go, I want to truly understand you. Not just to debate you, but I want to understand you. Because you might find that even if you still disagree at the end of the day, you go, but I understand where they're coming from. Maybe you might understand, oh, they're not actually in the bad guy category. They just think something stupid, but that's okay. That's not a good But they're not actually in the bad guy category. I see how they got there. We still disagree, but come on over here, because I see Christ in you, because I see God in you, because I see the image of God in you, because we can actually be united even if we're not uniform together. We don't look exactly the same. Ask good questions. Truly try and understand people that are different from you and understand that your unity doesn't have to depend on your uniformity. And then finally, and this is, this is, this is one that's going to be tough no matter what, so I'll prepare you for this. There's often no easy way to do this and there's often going to be hard feelings no matter what. But number three, be clear and kind about boundaries. So some of us will say, what does that mean I just give in and, and they walk all over me? Some of us, some of our concerns when we go places, maybe even with extended family, our concerns are honestly, there's people in my extended family who are teaching my kids things that I'm really uncomfortable with. We've got to put up boundaries at some point. It doesn't mean, this doesn't mean, oh, we just forget about that we're all, we have different opinions and everything goes. That's not what Paul is saying here. Sometimes you might have to have just a direct clear but kind conversation and say, hey, uh, you know, I heard you were talking to our son or our daughter about this kind of stuff. And, uh, you know, we know that this is a bit of a contentious topic even for us. And we would appreciate uh, that that's just not a topic you would go to with our kids because we have a different approach. And yeah, there might be hard feelings, but being clear and kind helps us to walk together forward. Somebody says, you know, you sit there and listen to that. I can't believe you don't agree with me. And you go, it's okay, we don't have to agree. And there can be a clear but kind boundary. You know, I don't agree with you. But that's okay. We can keep talking. Or sometimes the boundary is, we've talked about this so much, I know where you stand, you know where I stand. Let's move on. All right, we've dealt with it. We're adults. We don't agree. I don't have to control you. We can, we can move on and find ways to move on in our relationships even when we don't agree. And I come back to this passage in Colossians chapter 3, and he says, in the middle of all of this, just look at this, you know, since God shows you to be holy people, he loves, clothe yourselves with tenderhearted mercy, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Make allowance for each other's faults and forgive anyone who offends you. Remember the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. And then what we already read, and let the peace that comes from Christ rule in your hearts. Not the peace that comes from, everybody agrees with me. 
Now we're uniform. Now we don't have any conflict. No, no, no. The peace that comes from Christ dwelling in our hearts collectively together, we come together. That's, that's what we're trying to build as a church, as a community, that we can come together and not just, oh, there's no conflict, but instead to say we're united in Christ. We don't have to insist on uniformity. I want to end in prayer. And as I do that, uh, I just want to acknowledge, I know for many of us, so many of us, this is emotionally charged because there's people that we really love with whom we've really had a hard time recently. Like I said before, we just, we don't want to talk to them. We don't want to be there. It's always a conflict. It's always a fight. We feel like we've been ripped away. It could be your, your family, extended family. It could be friends that just have, have gone a different way. It could be people at church. It could be all these, these different relationships. And I want to pray for us now, and I want to pray that the, the peace of God that he gives to us, not the peace that comes from agreeing, but the peace that comes from a deeper unity and finding God's presence in other people that would just take over our lives. So would you close your eyes and just take a couple of deep breaths? And just before we pray, I want to ask, as we've been talking about this today, has there been someone or a group of people that have come to your mind? Maybe God's put on your mind. You just go, man, this is a relationship that is strained. This is one that's grieving me. These are people that I realize maybe I've been angry towards or they've been angry towards me. One that has, has maybe really hurt you to see that there's distance in it. And it could be, you know, pandemic related. It could be a different issue. It could be something you're fighting over. I don't know what it is, but maybe God just put certain people or person on your mind and you go, what I, what I really want is to find unity with that person. What I really want is reconciliation. What I really want is to know that we can, we can draw close together even if we're disagreeing about stuff. If that's you and someone's come to mind, while nobody's looking, I'm not going to single anybody out, I want to pray for you. I want to make sure you're prayed for. Would you, just, would you just slip up a hand and say, yeah, this, God's just putting this on my heart. There's somebody, there's somebody that I need to be reconciled with. I want to know. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So many... So many of us are just part of our life. But here's the good news. In Christ Jesus, thank you. God is a reconciler. We see in Christ Jesus. We see in the cross. He forgives us and he forgives our enemies. And in that love, he draws us together. Lord Jesus, you stretched out your arms of love upon the hardwood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. God, would you heal our minds? Would you heal our anger? Would you heal our bitterness? Would you forgive us of the ways that we've fostered those things? And would you replace those things with love, grace, forgiveness? with courage to walk towards people that uh, perhaps uh, our relationships have been, been strained or, or even broken. And would your peace rule in us collectively, even in the midst of so much conflict, bring your healing and what only you can do in Jesus' name.